Before we start, I got a quick question. Is this yellow or green? going to, it feels weird teaching with a mask on. Now we're going to go into the actual conditions in each of them, uh, starting with autosomal dominant. <clears throat> um, just a quick recap, we said that with autosomal dominant conditions, you only need one copy of mutated alleles in order to manifest a condition. Uh, and that means that you cannot be a carrier of an autosomal dominant condition, because if you have one allele, you have the condition. <clears throat> So the first condition we're going to talk about is familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, this one is, uh, out of the many conditions we're going to talk about, one of the most common ones you'll see on your exams. Um, and that's because it's one that you may actually see clinically and one that has a lot of important um, clinical manifestations. So familial hypercholesterolemia is, is very similar in presentation to patients who have hypercholesterolemia, um, but they're just going to have those same symptoms and risk factors, but increased. Um, so where you'd expect them to have elevated LDL triglycerides, they will, but it's going to be substantially more than what you would expect in a patient um, who has non-familial causes of hypercholesterolemia. So typically their LDL levels um, are going to be extremely high. Their levels of cholesterol will be extremely high, um, you know, as opposed to someone who may have a LDL of 150 or 170, uh, theirs can be significantly higher than that. We also talked about uh, for dominant conditions, <clears throat> you can have one copy of the mutated allele or you can have two. Uh, you can be heterozygous or homozygous with the condition. Patients who are homozygous and have two mutated alleles are going to have even more severe clinical manifestations than one who only have one inherited allele. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Alright. Um, Moving forward, the, the reason that patients who um, develop very high levels of cholesterol most commonly have to do with the LDL receptors. The LDL receptors on hepatocytes are responsible for bringing in um, the LDL molecules that are in blood circulation and bringing them into the liver, um, removing them from circulation, which is where they cause most of their harm. Uh, when they're in your bloodstream, they can attach to vessel walls and cause plaques, um, atherosclerosis and cause many of the complications that we see from having elevated LDL levels. So by having defects in the LDL receptors, this doesn't happen and the LDL molecules stay in the bloodstream and accumulate within the blood vessels, the plaques, and cause all the complications that we associate with um, hypercholesterolemia. Uh, less commonly, you can have a defect in apolipoprotein B Apolipoprotein B is on the surface of the LDL molecules and it's needed in order to bind to the actual LDL receptors. 
So the most common cause is the receptor itself being defective and not being able to transport LDL molecules into the hepatocytes. But it can also be a defect on the actual LDL surface on apolipoprotein B, which does not allow it to attach to the receptors. Uh, and finally, the last mutation uh, that's responsible for hypercholesterolemia is mutations to the PCSK9 gene. Uh, PCSK9, you guys have heard of it before, right? Mm -hmm. In farm? Yes. Oh, so in farm, you guys learned about PCSK9 what? What, it, what are they? PCSK9. Yep, the shots. PCSK9, what do they do to them? Uh, inhibitors. inhibitors, right? They inhibit PCSK9. Cool. So, and by inhib inhibiting PCSK9, they decrease, decrease LDL, LDL levels. Right. So, PCSK9 is responsible for taking LDL receptors and internalizing them, reducing the number of LDL receptors on hepatocytes. So, if PCSK9 reduces the amount of receptors, that means that PCSK9 will reduce the ability to bring LDL into the hepatocytes, which will mean that there'll be more LDL circulating in the circulation and in the blood vessels. So by using a PCSK9 inhibitor, you stop this process and you, uh, and you slow down the internalization of, of LDL um, receptors, so there's more LDL receptors available. Um, so one of the other causes for familial hypercholesterolemia is a mutation in PCSK9 uh, which will make them overactive and work extra to bring in LDL receptors, leading to elevated LDL levels in circulation. Does anyone have any questions about that? There's less receptors. There's more PCSK9, or more hyperactive PCSK9, which gets the receptors from the surface of the hepatocytes and brings them into the cell and destroys them. Okay, so it's getting rid of the receptors from the surface of the, of the cells and doesn't let them um, perform their action. <clears throat> so uh, there's not we don't necessarily test routinely for things like hypercholesterolemia, um, but there are certain times when you may suspect it to be present. Um, it doesn't change a whole lot if your patient has it or doesn't have it. You're still treating the cholesterol, and there's no specific medications that are going to... Um, you know, be different in patients who have familial versus non-familial causes. However, if it's due to a defect in PCSK9, for example, PCSK9 inhibitors um, may be effective in these patients. But you would suspect this in patients who have a couple different things. One, a family history. So obviously, if they have a family history of hypercholesterolemia, and we know that these conditions are relatively easy to transmit and have a very high probability of being transmitted to offspring, you would want to screen these patients for familial hypercholesterolemia. <clears throat> the other reason you would want to do this, um, because of course you can have a new mutation leading to hypercholesterolemia, familial hypercholesterolemia, you would want to do this if the patients have extremely high levels of LDL. So if you see something like an LDL of 190 in a patient who's like 20 years old, you will probably suspect that this is not due to um, you know, environmental circumstances and probably due to something genetic. Whereas if that patient was maybe, you know, 50 years old and had an LDL of 140, you'd probably not want to screen them for familial causes because it's probably just um, related to lifestyle factors. Uh, and then the same goes for physical exam findings that are associated with high cholesterol. What are some physical exam findings that you guys know about? 
Xanthalasma. Yep. What else? The tendons. Xanthomas on the tendons, so they get fatty eruptions on the tendons, on the iris, um, on the cor uh, not yeah, the cornea, on the fundoscopic exam. So you can have fat deposits on a lot, a lot of different places in the body. And if you see these, that's indicative of extremely high levels of cholesterol deposits in the body. Um, and LDL, that's going to be very high. So if you see these findings, then that usually indicates an extremely high level in the body and usually associated to familial causes of hypercholesterolemia. <clears throat> uh, the other thing is patients who have uh, a sudden or young onset heart disease, you want to also uh, screen them for familial hypercholesterolemia um, because it's one of the causes of uh, premature um, heart disease. <clears throat> so these are just some of the changes we talked about. The xanthalasma, the tendinopathies, and there's other ones like lipemia retinalis on fundoscopic exam. There's a lot of different findings. So the testing is, is pretty simple. It's the same testing that we talked about for the causes is what you test for um, as far as mutations go. So mutations to the LDL receptors, the PCSK9 gene, as well as the APOB gene. Uh, the treatment doesn't change necessarily. These patients are going to be placed on statins, um, which is what we usually use for patients who have um, high cholesterol. Uh, but typically, these patients will require multiple medications in order to be treated. Um, and most of these patients end up on things like PCSK9 inhibitors as well. But that's in severe cases, right? Because the, I think the PSK9 um, inhibitor, those are for the people that no matter what you try, their LDL still doesn't come down. Most patients with familial hypercholesterolemia are very difficult to manage their cholesterol levels. Most. Yeah. You would start with a statin. A statin. Yeah, you would start but with a statin. Just shots what do you mean? Like they won't, they won't no, they can be on multiple medications. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, and that's the other thing. If you have a patient who's taking multiple cholesterol medications and still has elevated LDL levels, that's another uh, concerning sign for them having familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, so the next condition, Marfan syndrome, this is another one that you will most definitely get questions on, um, on your pants, in your exams, my exam for sure. Um, Marfan's disease is not extremely common, um, but it's not uncommon. I've, I've definitely seen it in the past, and there's many people, um, celebrities and famous people throughout history that have had the condition. Um, Marfan syndrome is as a result of a defect in the fibrillin gene, and um, as well as tissue growth factor. Um, and you definitely need to know that. Uh, we definitely know the chromosome that's affected also, chromosome 15. Uh, the important thing to know about Marfan syndrome is the patient's presentations. Uh, they're going to be tall. They're going to be skinny. They're going to have long fingers. Their extremities are going to be longer um, than expected. There's findings <laughs> on the chest wall um, uh, that are pretty prominent. Um, so they, because of the... the um, the, um, I'm blanking on the word now. But the lens, the lens can get dislocated, and they can have uh, vision changes. So yeah, if they have lens dislocation, um, they'll they'll have vision changes. But for the most part, they don't routinely have vision changes if they don't have 
um, any displacement of the lens or any affected lens. <clears throat> the most concerning um, uh, symptoms that these patients might develop are cardiac. Um, the two biggest one is aortic root dilation, but also they can have valvular issues um, due to the, the chordae tendineae from the, from the valves and the uh, mitral and tricuspid valves. But usually the mitral valve is affected um, because there's a lot more pressure in the left ventricle. So they can get mitral, uh, mitral valve prolapse, mitral regurge, um, and aortic insufficiency as well. So these are some of the manifestations we've already talked about, long extremities, um, aortic root dilation, aneurysms, regurgitation, and dissection. So these are the most important things to identify. You guys might get a vignette um, explaining a patient with presentation of Marfan syndrome and asking what the most concerning effect is or what tests should be ordered, and you should know that the most important thing is to make sure they don't have any cardiac abnormalities that um, can be life-threatening. You can also have a similar question asking you about the gene mutation, etc. So make sure you know these pretty well. I'm sorry? Are they all diagnosed in childhood? Not necessarily. A lot of people go undiagnosed with a lot of these conditions. There's, there's people who have a presentation similar, and there's a lot, remember, there's a lot of conditions that present similarly. There's a lot of conditions that present with long extremities. Um, you know, thin patients, so it's not always Marfan syndrome. There's a lot of conditions that have very similar presentations, um, and sometimes people just have that presentation. It's not necessarily associated to a genetic mutation. So, uh, so hypercholesterolemia, usually, uh, a lot of times we don't go screening for cholesterol routinely um, early in life, so it doesn't get diagnosed early in life. But when you start screening for it, it'll get picked up, or if you develop clinical manifestations, like the tendinopathies, the xanthomas, or if you start having like heart disease at a young age before you're getting screened for your cholesterol, then it'll get picked up. Um, but depending on your provider and when, they're, when they start screening you for your cholesterol levels, it may get picked up early, but most of the time that's not a, a test that's ordered routinely at a, at a young age. <coughs> Uh, so these are just some other clinical findings. Uh, these two signs are not—they're not super high yield. Um, the name of the signs themselves, but these are some things that you'll find in these patients. Their their thumbs are usually very long, so if they close their hand over their thumb, it'll usually stick out pretty prominently over the other side. Um, if they wrap their thumb and pinky around their wrist, usually able to cover the entire nail of the pinky um, with the thumb. Everybody's doing that right now. <laughs> Um, and then the lens dislocation. Um, it's not the only condition that has lens dislocation. Uh, I think osteogenesis imperfecta, there's a couple of other conditions that have um, lens dislocation as well. <coughs> so genetic testing, um, we've talked about chorionic villus sampling and, and amniocentesis before. Um, it's one of the only ways to detect it early in, um, you know, like during pregnancy itself. Um, and the genetic testing would, of course, be testing for the mutation in the fibrillin-1 uh, gene. Any questions? All right. So the next condition, which is also uh, very frequently tested on in your pants and definitely going to be heavily tested on my exam, is neurofibromatosis. Uh, we have neurofibromatosis 1 and 2. So you need to know the differences between them and be able to distinguish between them on exam questions. 
Um, when you guys think about neurofibromatosis type 1, um, it's pretty easy to remember what gene is affected. It's the NF1 gene. So NF is in neurofibromatosis and 1 is in type 1. Um, and I like to think about it as NF17 because that helps me remember that it's on chromosome 17. Um, so if you just remember NF17, you know um, what the condition is, what chromosome is affected, um, and what gene is affected. And, and that makes it pretty easy. Um, so the presentation for neurofibromatosis type 1 is mainly going to be a lot of cutaneous findings on the skin. Um, cafe au lait spots is, is one of the most commonly tested topics. Uh, they also like to ask about freckles in the axilla. And they like to talk about leash nodules, which are neurofibromas that develop in the iris um, on the eyes. And I have pictures of that later, so you can see what they look like. <clears throat> Uh, there's also something that's pretty pathognomonic for this condition, although it's not necessarily common. Um, it's a, ple a plexiform neurofibroma, and that's a very, very, very large neurofibroma that occupies an entire plexus, and when you see it, you'll know exactly what it is. It's hard to miss, and I think there's pictures of that too, um, which we'll go over in a second. So the diagnostic criteria is not very important. You're never going to get a test question. Uh, that tells you you have a patient with five cafe au lait spots. You know, how many more cafe au lait spots do you need to establish a diagnosis for neurofibromatosis? So don't worry about memorizing the criteria. Um, but just know that if you see a patient and they have a cafe au lait spot, does it mean that they have neurofibromatosis? You need to have multiple um, signs and symptoms associated with the disorder in order to have any kind of clinical suspicion and want to order, um, you know, testing in order to diagnose it. So do not worry about memorizing all these criteria. <clears throat> um, so these are some of the clinical findings. So again, uh, multiple neurofibromas, uh, the leash nodules and the eyes, which are essentially the fibromas, but on the iris. Um, these are the cafe au lait spots. And um, as you can see, they have multiple. It's not just one or two. And axillary freckling as well. These are the plexiform uh, neurofibromas. So these are pretty pathognomonic for um, um, neurofibromatosis. And if they have one, you pretty much have an established diagnosis. So while most of the findings in neurofibromatosis type 1 are um, uh, cutaneous, a lot of the findings in type 2 are more in the actual uh, nervous system. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about some of those specific findings now. And I want you guys to remember for this one, um, NF22, uh, because it's neurofibromatosis 2, and it's on chromosome 22. Um, so if you remember that, you'll be able to remember, again, the, the gene that's mutated, the chromosome that's affected, and what condition it is that we're talking about. Uh, the most common thing that you're going to get tested on when it comes to neurofibromatosis type 2, which I think you guys have covered in other courses, um, is the schwannomas uh, of the ear. And typically, they're going to be bilateral. And if you have bilateral schwannomas, you can pretty much diagnose neurofibromatosis type 2 just based on that alone. Um, because it's, it's a very particular finding to have, um, to have a bilateral uh, schwannomas in, in the, of the ears. You can also have meningiomas and ependinomas, which are um, a brain and spinal cord-associated tumors. Um, and you can also have cataracts. Um, as well as hamartomas of the retina. 
the skin findings are not as common um, as you would find in neurofibromatosis type 1, but they may still have some cutaneous findings associated to it as well. So patients who do have the schwannomas, a lot of times they may or may not tell you specifically, um, but they may describe to you some of the physical exam findings like hearing loss, um, ringing of the ears, etc. Um, and they may ask you, um, you know, in regards to what uh, genetic test should, or what genetic testing or what genetic disorder should be considered with the patient presenting with a sudden onset of bilateral like tinnitus or hearing loss. Um, and you guys should know that it's associated to neurofibromatosis type 2. Um, and again, clinical criteria, not extremely important, but I think it's good to have here because it, it pretty much summarizes most of the signs and symptoms and which ones are much more suggestive of the disorder versus others. So obviously the bilateral um, schwannomas is going to be pretty much your, your primary diagnostic uh, criteria. But if they have unilateral schwannoma with family history, that's also considered diagnostic. Um, and then after that, it gets a little bit in the weeds, and, and I don't really need you guys to know all of that, to be honest you're not going to get tested in that degree of detail for these conditions. Tuberous sclerosis is something I have never seen tested on the, um, on the pants, to be honest with you. Um, and on my exam, I'm not going to go uh, too far into it. Uh, it's, it's not a very common disorder, and the only thing I really want you guys to focus on is going to be the mutations, um, which is going to be TSC1 and TSC2. Easy to remember because it's literally just an abbreviation for the name, tuberous sclerosis complex. And there's certain um, cutaneous findings associated to it that I want you guys to remember. <coughs> the, the most common ones that are tested, if, if you're ever given to it, will be on um, like dermatologic findings. These patients can have hypopigmented lesions of the skin, um, which are called ash leaf spots. They probably won't use that terminology. Um, they'll probably say hypopigmented macules and also shade green patches, which are also hypopigmented, but they're not macules. They're actually raised off the skin, um, and they have an abnormal texture to them, uh, as opposed to the Ashley spots, which are flat um, and not raised at all. So typically, that's the main kind of questions that you'll get. These are the shade green patches, so it has like a rough texture to it. It's raised off the skin, um, but also hypopigmented. Um, the Ashley spots are just hypopigmented macules, so they're flat on the skin. Um, angiofibromas are not commonly tested with this condition, so I wouldn't worry too much about them. Um, another autosomal dominant condition, which is pretty much never tested on on your pants, and I don't anticipate you'll ever see um, come up on your pants, um, is hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. The name alone tells you everything you need to know about the condition. Um, it's inherited. Uh, it's related to patients who develop telangiectasia, which tend to rupture and hemorrhage and cause complications. Uh, where can they develop these telangiectasia? It can be pretty much anywhere. They can be in the GI tract, and if you have telangiectasia that rupture in the GI tract, you'll present with what? Hey, can you repeat the question we weren't listening? <laughs> huh? Yes, bleeding, blood in the stool. Cool. So yeah, you have blood in the stool, you can have blood in the stool. 
Um, these patients can have transmutation in the brain, which are rupture, they'll have a, a stroke, right? So all of the symptoms are essentially dependent on where the tenagetaceae are. So, I mean, you guys are not going to get questions on this, um, but it exists. They get tenagetaceae. The tenagetaceae can be anywhere. And depending on where they are when they rupture, they cause symptoms associated to whatever system that is. If it's in the pulmonary system, they may get shortness of breath, hemoptysis, GI tract. They may get um, hematemesis, uh, melena, or, and or hematochesia. So it just depends on where the tenagetaceae are. Um, all the mutations are associated to vascular factors. Um, so, and I don't need you guys to know the mutations for these because you will never, ever be tested on that. Um, but they're here for you anyway. Uh, another condition that you will never see tested on your pants is von Hippel-Lindau syndrome. Um, I don't think I have questions on my exam about von Hippel-Lindau syndrome either because it really isn't uh, on the pants blueprint. Um, it was in the textbook, but not, not in the pants blueprint. Um, so to be honest, I would not spend any significant amount of time studying von Hippel-Lindau syndrome. Um, it's, it's not going to be tested. Um, in reference to breast cancer, there's a lot of factors with breast cancer that are hereditary. This is one of the ones where um, the genetic mutation has an extremely high, we talked about penetrance. So if you manifest any of these genetic mutations, um, specifically the BRCA1 gene, which is a lot more aggressive, you have an extremely high risk of developing breast cancer in the future, um, which is why a lot of people who have these mutations are usually pretty aggressive. Um, in, their, in their approach to preventing the, the development of these malignancies. Uh, the main difference between the, the BRCA1 and 2 genes is the type of cancers that are developed. Uh, the main difference is that um, BRCA1 is associated with breast and um, ovarian pathology, uh, whereas BRCA2 is typically more just associated with breast. Uh, BRCA1 is also associated with more resistant uh, forms of cancer that do not respond to a lot of chemotherapeutic agents um, and are a little bit more aggressive. <clears throat> there are several other cancers associated with the BRCA genes, pancreatic, colon, etc. Um, but the most commonly tested ones are, are breast and ovarian, and those are the most commonly occurring. So when it comes to breast cancer, um, there's some other syndromes that increase the risk of breast cancer. Uh, however, these syndromes are not typically tested. Uh, Lee-Fraumeni syndrome is due to a mutation in TP53. And TP53 is, um, is a tumor suppressor gene uh, that works in breast tissues specifically. So sometimes there can be uh, mutations to this gene and it will not effectively stop uh, cells that are abnormal in the breast tissues from, um, from uh, replicating. And patients who are not able to stop this process can develop uh, breast masses, breast tumors, and, um, and sometimes these can be malignant lesions as well. <clears throat> Peutz-Zeger syndrome um, is also not commonly tested on your pants. I've never seen a question um, in, in any blueprint in the rotation exam or anything like that. Um, only reason I ever heard about it was from Rainbow, to be quite honest with you. Um, and these patients typically present with multiple 
um, uh, multiple tumors. They, they can be malignant and they can be benign as well. Um, and typically they're associated to the gastrointestinal tract, uh, mainly the colon, but can also be in the small bowel, the pancreas. Uh, and they also have hyperpigmentation um, of the oral mucosa as well. So if you ever have any questions, those will be the main ones that you'll be asked is um, the clinical presentation. Um, but otherwise, I would not spend a whole lot of time um, focusing on PCA here. <clears throat> and then finally, uh, Cowden syndrome is another um, uh, cause that can be associated to breast cancer um, and multiple other cancers. And it's also due to a mutation in a tumor suppressor gene, um, the PTEN gene. And again, I'm not going to test you guys on, on Cowden syndrome, and you're not going to get questions on it on the pants. So when it comes to this lecture, you're really going to be focused heavily on familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, you will get a lot of questions regarding familial hypercholesterolemia, how to diagnose it, when to suspect it, what the mutations of the genes are, um, what physical exam findings are associated to it, and what genetic testing and treatments are going to be um, uh, recommended for these patients. So you need to know that. Uh, you absolutely need to know Marfan syndrome, um, and you're going to get multiple questions regarding what the genetic mutation is, um, the chromosome, what physical exam findings you're going to find, what the life-threatening complications are associated to it, um, and that's pretty much it. Neurofibromatosis type 1 and 2, you need to know the uh, presentation. You don't need to know the exact diagnostic criteria, but you need to know if there's a vignette with the findings associated. Is it type 1? Is it type 2? What chromosome is it on? Um, and I believe that's pretty much it as well. Um, and that's it. For tuberous sclerosis, the, the affected gene is something I would know. And the clinical manifestations is something I would know as well, just in case you get a question, but it's not common. Um, hereditary um, hemorrhagic telangiectasia, I'm not going to test you on. Von Hippel-Lindau, I'm not going to test you on. Um, the breast cancer, I mean, obviously, you're going to get questions about BRCA1 and 2, what type of pathology they're associated with individually. Um, and that's pretty much it. These other conditions, I will not test you on on, on my exam because they're not really part of PAN's blueprint. So. And this is just a table with some of the, um, the affected genes and what, they're, what tumors they're responsible for. Um, the list, there's a much more expansive list, but this just covers some of the ones that we covered today. <coughs> and that's it.